Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 19th of November. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This week, producer Rosie McCabe explores hostage diplomacy and speaks with the families trying to get their loved ones out of foreign jails. The government has two obligations that I think are absolutely crystal clear. One is to protect those who are being held, which means settle the debt. The other is to protect others who have not yet been taken, which means making sure Iran understands that hostage-taking does not pay. At the moment, the government is doing neither. And then Aisha Aldris looks at New Age spirituality and speaks with those who are seeking to reconcile the practice with their Muslim faith. So the law of attraction, it's no different than the law of gravity. Like attracts like. That then slips into the domain of shirk. And when we forget that everything is happening by the will of Allah, Allah has said, I am to my servants according to their expectations of me. But first... Pro-Palestinian demonstrators gathered outside the London School of Economics last week. Here to tell us why they were there and what they were doing is new Arab journalist and friend of the podcast, Najas Zatat. Hello, Najas. Hi, Hugo. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, So, Najas, what happened? So, um, what happened was uh, there was a debate on the Middle East peace process called Perspectives on Israel and Palestine, Uh, which was organised by the London School of Economics on the 9th of November. And it had Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom, Sipi Hotaveli, who spoke at the event. It lasted approximately 90 minutes, uh, after which point uh, pro-Palestinian students uh, kind of came over and uh, were raising Palestinian flags, booing the ambassador as she left uh, LSE. And students reportedly accused the student union of giving a platform to, quote, racism. And they called Israel a, quote, terror uh, terror state. The actual event went ahead as planned. And it was only after Hotavelli left that things kicked off at, at, the, at the school. For listeners who might not know, who is uh, Zippy Hotavelli? Zippy Hotavelli is the current ambassador of Israel to the United Kingdom. She's served uh, in several government roles, including the Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Minister of Diaspora Affairs and the Minister of Settlement Affairs. She's also a member of the Knesset for the Likud party, which is Netanyahu's party. And um, she's ha- she's got a few kind of controversial uh comments that she's made in the past, including previously calling the 1948 Nakba, which is the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their native land in the creation of the state of Israel, uh, an Arab lie. And the people that were protesting, who were they and what were their objections? The main people that were protesting were members of LSE for Palestine. Uh, It's a pro-Palestine group at the university. And the group said that Hotavelli's invitation was a, quote, direct contradiction of the LSE student union motion passed earlier this year in June 2021, which committed to, quote, ensuring that the university is free from discrimination and plays an active role in dismantling systems of oppression at home and abroad. 
as well as, quote, establish an apartheid-free zone that does not normalise relations with any regime of racism, oppression and discrimination. According to LSE for Palestine, students maintained a peaceful protest throughout the evening and it was the police who had incited violence. Um, They went on to add that the protest was a tremendous demonstration of solidarity with Palestine and that there was no place for a Nakba denier and anti-Palestinian racist like Hotavelli on campus. And what's been the response to these protests? The response has been uh, fairly mixed. The LSE says it will review processes around such events, and it stated that, quote, intimidation or threats of violence are completely unacceptable, and that they will, quote, take action if any students are identified as having made threats of violence. Home Secretary Priti Patel, who this morning announced plans to make Hamas a terrorist organisation, um, said she was, quote, disgusted by the treatment of the Israeli ambassador at LSC. Anti-Semitism has no place in our universities or our country. And she said that she'll continue to do everything possible to keep the Jewish community safe from intimidation, harassment and abuse. Hussam Zomlot, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, had been due to attend a follow-up event on the 11th of November, but has also now pulled out. And there's a real sense of mixed reactions on um, from people online, on the one hand, supporting LSE for Palestine and attempt at deplatforming um, Hotavelli. And there are also people on the other side of the spectrum who, um, who, who disagree with that as well. Najus, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. that they took Nazanin for something and then they repurposed her. They took her for that debt. And for five and a half years, they've let her life waste away. This is Richard Ratcliffe, the husband of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a British citizen detained in Iran, a hostage. They denied her daughter, her mother, when they've known full well what would solve it. It's not the last person that's taken hostage. There have been a number since it is morally indefensible you know, there's no moral argument of piety saying we don't want to give in uh, the UK's position is legally incoherent and morally uh, repugnant Hostage diplomacy is hitting the headlines in the UK partly due to one man Richard Radcliffe Richard started a hunger strike outside the UK Foreign Office on October 24th. 21 days later, he ended it, after nights camped out in the cold and losing several pounds of body weight. The determined accountant from North London took the drastic action to get UK politicians and the public to pay attention to his wife's situation. His wife, Nazanin, was arrested in 2016 when visiting Iran on a family holiday with their then 22-month-old daughter. She has been arbitrarily detained in prison for years and was recently slapped with a new sentence. Her and her family's story is a tragedy. A tragedy of senseless cruelty and unmitigated failures by successive politicians. However, it is by no means the only story of its kind. Hostage diplomacy has been and still is an industry, underscoring relations between MENA states and Western governments. It is a practice that is all too common spawned by crooked justice systems and Western failures to protect their citizens. But what is hostage diplomacy? 
Why does it take place? And why does it keep happening? Defining someone as a hostage is, I mean, it's a very, very emotive word. This is Rhys Davis, a UK barrister at Temple Garden Chambers and a specialist in international criminal law. It, it probably doesn't have a, a kind of legally specific meaning. I mean, you know, off the top of my head, I would probably define hostage taking as acts carried out extrajudicially, so you know, out with a, a, a legal system. But then, of course, you get into the debate, at what point is a legal system really a, a functioning, fair legal process versus whether or not it is just a mechanism by which rogue states can capture individuals? One of the most obvious examples is Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe. She can quite properly be described as a hostage because it's, it's, it's clear, I think, to anyone that not only has she done absolutely nothing wrong, but she has been used as a pawn by the Iranian regime to suit their own ends. A note before we move on. Often, arbitrarily detained is used as a synonym for the word hostage. Nazanin and other British citizens detained abroad, like Anoush Ashouri, have been repeatedly called arbitrarily detained by the UK government. Nazanin, Anoush and others have not been called a hostage. The reason why, we'll get to later. For now, how do you define someone as arbitrarily detained? Rees says there is a specific legal framework... However, a lot of the time, it is easy to know when someone is arbitrarily detained because if it smells like arbitrary detention, it probably is arbitrary detention. Yeah, and and when one considers arbitrary detention, it almost in a way, almost in a way, doesn't matter whether or not people who who are detained have done the things that they're accused of if they've then been put through a kangaroo court type process. I see these cases where individuals are accused of various things and what happens is that they're then prosecuted of very serious matters in a trial that lasts a day or two in in a language they don't understand on the basis of confession evidence that was improperly extracted um, or on the basis of evidence that they're not allowed to challenge where they can't cross-examine individuals. And every single thing there means that that the trial process is profoundly flawed and as a result, they are detained arbitrarily. Arbitrary detention, hostage diplomacy, has existed in global politics for years. It is the state-sanctioned detention of an individual from another country based on unfounded charges and without just legal cause. Between the Middle East and the West, it is a story that keeps repeating itself. So, why do countries like Iran and the UAE continue to take hostages? There are no hard and fast rules. Such a practice generally happens on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes it is in retaliation for a Western state detaining one of their citizens. Other times it is for an explicit political, social, economic objective. When a government or a third party wants specific immediate results. This is Daniel Strife, a visiting lecturer at City, University of London. He has written about the 1970s Iranian hostage crisis and explored the history and context of hostage diplomacy. And they really don't have either the patience or the ability to go to sit through prolonged arbitration, some sort of international process that may take months and months and months of negotiation. So frequently there may be a seizure of another often more powerful or influential country's citizens. And there'll be quite clearly a demand for, for instance, in the case of Britain, there's the allegations that that there are some demands for the release of money in regard to a decades old defense contract. What Daniel is referring to is a £400 million debt owed by the UK to Iran. This debt has been linked to the release of Nazanin, Anoush and others. 
The historic debt was accrued when Iranians paid in advance for tanks prior to the 1970s revolution. The military vehicles never arrived, but the UK kept the money. The families of Nazanin and Anoush have both urged the UK government to pay the 400 million. While the headline issue is Iran's insistence that the debt is repaid, other issues, such as the Iran nuclear deal, also play a role. Um, And you certainly have that in a few other cases regarding the Middle East. Sometimes, however, there are less explicit reasons for a state taking someone hostage. An individual can be caught up in a situation unknowingly, in the wrong place at the wrong time, accused of something they didn't do. For example, Zak Shaheen, a former business executive, locked up in Dubai on false charges of financial crimes. Zak Shaheen is an American citizen who's in jail in Al-Awir in Dubai, which is one of the, the most notorious jails. This is David Haig, a human rights lawyer and CEO of British NGO Detained International. He effectively, like, like many do, and there's also many Brits there that fell foul of regime changes and, and political squabbles amongst Emiratis. And so you, know, so you often see when one kind of ruling elite is going out of a country, particularly in countries where there are dictatorships like, like the UAE, and another uh, kind of all-powerful regime is coming in, the people that serve them often get blamed for things they didn't do, and that's what's happened in Zach's case. You might think taking hostages is a risky practice for a state to pursue. It isolates them on the world stage and makes them look abusive, violent, cruel. But Dan, hostage diplomacy expert, says there's a warped ideology behind it all. But one thing that does emerge frequently, but not all the time, is it often occurs in countries that, that where there is some sort of vestigial revolutionary ideology. So you get this in Iran, you get this in outside the Middle East, in China and in North Korea. But what you see in all those cases is there seem to be a, an attempt to generate greater public sympathy at home for a revolutionary cause, there was a sort of sense of othering. Look, these, this, these people are re- representatives of the countries that have been oppressing us, putting us down. When it comes to the UAE or other Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, Dan says it's a bit more puzzling to understand why they take hostages from Western nations. There's a, net, a need there to prove certain conservative bona fides, I think, in both cases of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and, and Iran as well. And so uh, in order to avoid, I think, if you're in the ruling class in Saudi Arabia or the UAE, in order to avoid charges of hypocrisy for speaking out in favor of certain religious rules and traditions while simultaneously welcoming in foreign investment, foreign influence, having a ruling elite that does a lot of things that probably don't ascribe strictly to conservative Islamic ideology. That also might be a way of rallying people around. So hostage taking occurs because the perpetrators are looking for legitimacy, money, status, propaganda. The list goes on. But what is the role of Western governments in all of this? Are they failing to protect their citizens? But it is not a moral position for a government to allow its citizens to be abused. Richard Ratcliffe again. The government has two obligations that I think are absolutely crystal clear. One is to protect those who are being held, which means settle the debt. The other is to protect others who have not yet been taken, which means making sure Iran understands that hostage taking does not pay. At the moment, the government is doing neither. Richard told me that the UK government has acted opaquely over Nazanin's detainment, providing only morsels of useful information with lots of jargon. While the UK Foreign Office says it is pressing for her release, Richard told me there has been little progress, and he was angry as well as disappointed. They oddly 
um, will not reveal their legal opinion as to whether she's a hostage. I'm not sure I understand why the government is so reluctant to acknowledge the elephant in the room, um, but it's self-serving. Uh, it would protect Nazni more, it would protect others more, if they were more honest about Iran's taking hostages, and if they challenged Iran's taking hostages. Like Richard, Sherry Azadi also waits in limbo, unsure when her husband, Anoush Ashuri, will be freed from prison. Anoush travelled to Iran in 2017 to see his elderly mother. Iranian authorities kidnapped him in the street and accused him of conspiring with a hostile state. Sherry has been pressing the UK Foreign Office for years for her husband's release. I spoke with Sherry. I think when you when you admit that your citizens are held hostage by another government, it brings with it a higher sense of responsibility, higher accountability. You know, there was a debate by the in the Foreign Affairs Committee in Parliament, and it was led by Tom uh, Tugendhat. And I think he, in his report, said, why don't you call these people hostages? These people are effectively hostages. But we've never seen any change in the rhetoric. It's always, always arbitrarily detained dual nationals. I asked Sherry what her interactions with the UK Foreign Office have been like. It's beyond frustrating because, I mean, let's remember, our conversations with the Foreign Office are not just, they're not limited to this debt alone. For four years, we've been hearing regarding our, their efforts to, to bring about the release of my husband or other dual nationals. For four years, we have been hearing different versions of strongly urging the Iranian government, firmly pushing, concerted efforts, diplomatic push. It's, it's the number of, I mean, I can, I, I almost have it off by heart. <laughs> the the various ways that they're telling us what they're doing, which is effectively not a lot, because they could be pushing hard, there could be a diplomatic push, there could be strongly urging, but none of it has worked. We, we haven't seen any tangible results. Although several British politicians have recently urged the UK government to pay the historic debt, and for Boris Johnson to get involved properly in Nazanin's and Anusha's release, as well as the release of other British citizens, Johnson said the situation is complex but that he had sympathies with Nazanin as well as the others. Constantly facing bureaucracy, jargon and hollow promises, it's no wonder that the families of Nazanin and Anoush resort to desperate measures. Take Richard, who went on a hunger strike for over two weeks. Yeah, I I mean, definitely it's getting harder the longer the hunger strike goes on. Um, Yesterday I felt terrible, Uh, partly emotionally we had a bad meeting with the minister and then it was just really full on with lots of interviews, so I was just exhausted. Um, but today I felt relatively better. It's been- David, the human rights lawyer, told me about his friend Martin, who has walked from Houston to Washington to help secure Zach's release. And in terms of Martin, I mean, Martin, a colleague of mine, obviously knows Zach. He was, Martin was also in, you know, incorrectly and unlawfully jailed. But then he decided he wanted to effectively walk to Washington basically, you know, set off walking, which is nearly 1800 miles, which is, I think, longer than from Land's End to John O'Groats. And he had a small tent, which he was going to stay in if he couldn't get, you know, hotels along the way. And then not too far in, there's there's a hurricane warning. And in America, you seem to get these kind of warnings of bad weather on your phone, whether you sign up for them or not. And he kept on getting these warnings. So he literally walked through a hurricane. Um, and then while he's been walking to Washington, we hired two barristers, one called Reese Davis and another called Ben Keith, to put together a complaint 
to the UN for the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention and a complaint under US Magnitsky sanctions, effectively requesting the sanctioning of various people in the UAE, in the, in, in the Dubai ruling regime, in the US, but also in the UK, while he was doing that walk. Here, David is referring to the Magnitsky Act. This is a tool used by Western powers, like the US and the EU, to place targeted sanctions on human rights abusers, freeze their assets and ban them from entering certain countries. It can also be used to hold hostage takers to account. There's two things we've been talking with the government behind closed doors. Uh, one is, is Magnitsky sanctions, so that's not general sanctions on Iranian people, it's not their fault, but the individuals who are responsible for Iran's hostage-taking industry um, should be sanctioned, meaning their assets overseas are frozen and their travel bans. The big issue is we have to be prepared to use our influence rather than just, you know, roll over and, and say we don't want to rock the boat. Barrister Rhys Davis again. I asked him what Britain can do to protect its citizens and stop others like Nazanin from being taken hostage. Uh, and I think the Magnitsky legislation is one way of doing that because it is a way of projecting our influence um, and projecting our, our displeasure as a country at the, the conduct of other people. Rees also raised the issue of diplomatic protection. Nazanin has been granted diplomatic protection. This is the escalation of an individual's case to a state level, e.g. saying this individual represents us as a state. Nazanin's family said the government haven't used his status sufficiently. Anoush has not been given diplomatic protection, nor have the other British citizens taken hostage. I think there is a case, certainly there's a case to, to see if we can review or, or force the use of diplomatic protection and constant protection. I think that's an interesting way of, of dealing with things. But it's, it's being prepared to use our influence. But ultimately, Rhys explained... The UK Foreign Office is required to do very little when it comes to helping citizens who are arbitrarily detained. Rees says it's ultimately up to them what they do. Richard has some clear ideas for what the British government should be doing when it comes to ensuring the safety of UK citizens in future. Um, and the second thing, uh, which Dominic Raab's predecessor, Jeremy Hunter, promised to do, was to take him around to court. Um, you can't legally do it for hostage-taking because... The Hostages Convention doesn't have uh, jurisdiction. Um, but there are treaties that you could do it with. Um, and I think it would be one of the most effective things the UK could do to take Iran to an international court over its hostage taking. Um, As nation states argue about outstanding debts, running into the hundreds of millions, and conflicts of ideologies, in Britain, Sherry Azadi waits for the return of her husband, and Richard as well as Nazanin's daughter, waits for their wife and mother to come home. As my husband said, it's like winning the anti-lottery. It's what it's winning the opposite of the lottery, you know. No, these people, we if we ever had even I would say one hundredth of a percent of a no, of an idea that something like this may happen, we would never have gone back. But we're not we're not political people, you know, we're not involved in any form of politics. We're we're extremely ordinary. So for people like us to be caught up in this situation, the, the only recourse we have is the government. And when that government refuses to help, who do you turn to? Final words to Richard. Uh, so in her understanding, Daddy is, is camping here on strike to get Boris Johnson to bring back Mummy, um, which is, in a sense, the truth of it. She probably understands 
you know, we've done various things to get mummy home and they haven't worked. Um, she does ask when this is going to be over. She does ask, does ask when mum's coming home. But she probably doesn't worry in the way you would as an adult because she's seven. So hunger strike is something that where the rules are you can't eat, but it's like any other game. At some point, you can eat again. What it comes down to is Islam is about building the best version of yourself. And as a Muslim, I feel like the law of attraction is similar in the way that you're building that best version of you. New age spirituality has become increasingly popular among millennials and Gen Z. In the past couple of years, it's taken on a life of its own on TikTok, particularly with regards to the practices of manifestation and the law of attraction. Many young Muslims have incorporated it into their lives in a move many within the religion have deemed blasphemous, otherwise known as shirk, the major Islamic sin of associating inherent power with anything other than God or Allah. But what is the law of attraction and manifestation? The law of attraction is a belief that if you focus your thoughts on a particular object, such as money or success or even love sometimes, then the powers of the universe will give it to you. This is Esme Partridge, a writer on Islamic philosophy, mysticism, and the dynamics of religion and spirituality in a secular digital age. Now, the so-called powers of the universe tend to be quite vaguely defined and not usually in relation to a specific deity or God. It's just the mysterious forces that be. Manifestation is quite similar to the law of attraction. So it's basically another form of this belief that you can bring your desires into reality through certain means of mental concentration. Manifestation, I found, tends to employ more specific methods for doing so, whereas the law of attraction can sometimes just be a kind of vague sentiment. General understanding says manifestation doesn't require a deity. In fact, Esme says it has a history of being used in neo-paganism and witchcraft, and there are different ways in which it can be practised this specific practice of manifestation is called scribing, which is basically where you you set an intention, what you want to achieve from the, the ritual, and then you write down those goals in a journal or on a piece of paper. It also sometimes involves using symbols, which is something which comes from occult traditions, neo-paganism, witchcraft, and all of this is done in the hopes that it will manifest whatever was on that piece of paper and bring it into your life. Although the belief in the law of attraction has seemingly secular elements, some Muslims also believe in it on the basis that like attracts like and through their interpretations of Islamic hadiths, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. This includes Alexander Ehsan, a Muslim faith-based spirituality coach. So the law of attraction, it's no different than the law of gravity. Like attracts like. That then slips into the domain of shirk. And when we forget that everything is happening by the will of Allah, Allah has said, I am to my servants according to their expectations of me. So this goes back to this really important idea of personal responsibility, understanding God as he has revealed himself as a God of mercy, love, generosity. This is how Allah created the universe to work for a purpose. On the basis of the hadith Alexander shared, If God is what we expect him to be, then putting out positive ideas is more likely to deliver positive results, and vice versa with the negative. However, Alexander also looks at the way in which the law can be utilised for the best possible development of the self, to reach a state of peace and harmony, values synonymous with Islam. 
Alexander doesn't see this as manifestation in the secular form. He simply sees it as a way to cleanse our state from negativity and limiting beliefs and surrender to God's will for his mercy to provide the best solutions. Whatever reality we are projecting based on our thoughts, based on our beliefs, based on our emotions, our state is really what it comes down to. And the goal of Islam is to really get to the state of Islam, which is a state of peace, a state of surrender, a state of harmony. When a human being is in a state of surrender and worship, they are magnetically attractive. In that state, it's not us doing anything. There's less of the self trying to manifest and create and attract. It's Allah's mercy that's just now then pouring down on his creation. However, some Muslims do practice what they believe is an Islamic form of manifestation. Salima, a Muslim YouTuber, has created several videos on the topic. She says she does manifest simply by practicing elements of Islam, with conviction that God will provide her with what she hopes for. This is what her manifesting process looks like. We don't have anything in this world without the power of Allah. Um, So I think it's really important to start by expressing that gratitude for what you have. And then I also like to do dhikr, so the remembrance of Allah. And I'll typically do that in the mornings is a great way to start off my day. I also love to just create goals. I like to write out my goals personally. I find that it helps just to kind of lay out the steps I want to take towards getting them. And then making dua is one of the biggest things. Dua is supplication, where Muslims ask God for things that they want. Dhikr, as described by Salima, is also practiced by Muslims universally. Salima's videos have drawn accusations from some of blasphemy. However, she insists she is simply using Islamic practices with conviction and remembering the role that God plays. I understand where people are coming from because there are different methods of manifestation where things can get iffy. People try to delve into different methods and ideologies. I just think it's best to keep things simple and where I feel comfortable with what I'm doing. Keeping it simple, keeping it towards your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no one can take that away from you. And no one can sit there and say that, you know, you connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is wrong. And I think at the end of the day, I'm not believing that writing you know, my goals on a sheet of paper is ultimately going to get me what, what, what I want. It's more of just there. It's like when I'm making the app, I'm remembering these goals that I have. Although there may be evidence for elements of the law of attraction in some interpretations of Islamic teaching, some Muslims believe the two cannot be directly associated with one another due to the secular associations the law of attraction and manifestation have. What they're doing is not the accurate definition of what is universally known as the law of attraction or manifesting. If I say, as a Muslim, I'm going to think positively and believe that Allah will help me, that's good. That is not the law of attraction, right? That's a natural aspect of life. What the law of attraction is, it's spell work. It's based in the magician's belief. And they believe the intention, the thought, has the power to create And that is where you start to challenge your belief according to Islam. Because we can think positive thoughts, but there's no way we can guarantee that God wills that for us. So it challenges God's will. And that's where I say the law of attraction is very satanic. Amal, a spiritual Muslim coach, experienced what she calls the consequences of practicing manifestation in the law of attraction. When you conflict and you confuse and you use this terminology as, as like, it is the law of attraction, but really you're practicing the sunnah. What happens is in your heart, you have this mixed understanding that I have to do these steps and then this is going to be the result. No, I do these steps and Allah will do what he wills. It pulls you out of the state of reliance on Allah 
to a state of reliance and dependence on yourself. You know, that's how I experienced it. So this begs the question as to whether the entire conflict boils down to semantics and language. Each of our Muslim guests acknowledged that like attracts like, whether they refer to it as the law of attraction or otherwise. Each of our Muslim guests also acknowledged that God may be more likely to give you what you expect him to, whether they refer to that as manifestation or otherwise too. Part of me really believed like the result was in my control. And so when things would go wrong, instead of saying, this is the will of Allah, I would think, oh, I'm not attracting properly. I'm not doing it properly and get more stressed out. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Rosie McCabe, and Aisha Aldris, with additional help from Naja Satat. Our theme music was by Omar El Thil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. <laughs>